It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Supreme Court is a secretive institution, but this term the curtain seems to have been pulled back a bit, with not only the leaked draft abortion decision, but also signs of tension and distrust among the justices. The strains of the ideological shift in the court seeped into the public in December from comments by Justice Sonia Sotomayor during the abortion arguments. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates? in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts. I I, I don't see how it is possible. And Justice Clarence Thomas posed a similar question a few weeks ago after the leak. I do think that what happened at the court is tremendously bad. I think it's... um, I wonder how long we're going to have uh, these institutions at the rate we're undermining them. Beyond the drama, there's the question of just how productive the Roberts Court really is. When the justices rise for their summer recess, they'll have handed down only 59 decisions in argued cases. The third year in a row, they failed to reach 60 decisions. You have to go back to the Civil War to find such a small docket. In fact, until 1988, the court used to decide more than 150 cases a year. So what happened? Joining me to answer that question is constitutional law expert Stephen Vladek, a professor at the University of Texas Law School. Steve, before we get to the number of decisions, I want to talk about the slow pace of the court this term. The Supreme Court seems to be a little off its usual schedule for the end of the term. It's got a heavier-than-usual backlog of decisions to hand down. I believe that not even half the cases for the term have been decided. What's going on? Yeah, you know, June, we just hit the halfway mark on Wednesday. So the court's handed down signed decisions in 30 argued cases. There are 29 to go. What's going on? I mean, I think a lot of things are going on. I think, without question, the you know, unprecedented leak of the draft majority opinion in the Dobbs case in early May has, you know, had both a direct and indirect effect 
on the court's ability to finish its business this term. I think the amount of high-profile cases the court has handled this term on the so-called shadow docket, these you know orders and applications that don't go through plenary review, you know those take time, and I think that time comes from somewhere else. And I think you know June, the cases the court is hearing this term are, on average, more significant, more divisive, more contentious, and so. You add those three things together and you get a court that, as Adam Feldman has pointed out, had a greater percentage of its cases still to be decided on June 1st than at any point in the past for which there's data going all the way back to 1950. And the decisions that were handed down this week were not the ones that most people have been waiting for. That's an understatement. You know, where's the missing in action Second Amendment case that the justices seemed all but to have decided against New York at oral arguments. Where are the big cases? Yeah, I mean, as you know, the court does tend to backlog the big cases. That, you know, it's it's not uncommon for the last cases we get the last couple weeks of June, even early July, to not necessarily be the last cases that were argued, right, but rather the ones that are the most divisive. And I think that's a reflection, at least in part, of the gravity of the issues that the justices are deciding, and I think of the tenor of the separate opinions. I mean, you know, we saw just on Wednesday with Justice Sotomayor's dissent in this under-the-radar case about, you know, a Border Patrol officer, some pretty sharp accusations um, directed toward the majority. And I think the, that's only going to get more heated as we get toward the New York gun case, as we get toward the abortion case, this really important climate change case, West Virginia versus EPA. So, You know, I think we really are in for however long it's going to be, whether it's three weeks or a month or even six weeks, we are in for a pretty rocky period of decisions from the Supreme Court. And because of this backup, those decisions are going to come right on top of each other in pretty short order. Steve, many court watchers have pointed out the justice's slow pace in handing down decisions this term. But in an opinion piece, you point out that for the last few years, the court has been handing down fewer decisions than ever before. Sort of the incredible shrinking docket. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, to me, almost as big a story, maybe even a bigger story, than the fact that the court just happens to be behind this particular term. I mean, when all is said and done, when the court does eventually rise for its summer recess, it's going to have handed down probably no more than 59 signed decisions and argued cases. Last term, June, it was 56. The term before it was 53, whereas before three years ago, the court hadn't dipped below 60 of these signed merits decisions since the Civil War. And this is part of a broader trend where, you know, as recently as the early 2000s, the court was hearing 85 to 90 cases a year. In the 2010s, it was still 75 to 80 cases a year. But really, since Justice Kennedy's retirement, the docket has fallen into the low 60s, now the high 50s. And, you know, I think there are plenty of folks who would say, great. (laughs) Like, if this court has less to do, that's not going to bother them. But I actually think that there are some longer-term problems with the Supreme Court's docket continuing to shrink in this respect. In 1988, the court used to hear more than 150 cases a year, which seems astonishing right now. So what happened to drop the number by about 50 cases almost overnight? So by the mid-1980s, there was still a large chunk of the court's appellate jurisdiction that was mandatory, meaning that were cases that the justices had to take up, especially appeals from state courts, and largely at the justices' own request. 
Congress in 1988 revisited that and gave the Supreme Court just about plenary control over its docket. Congress in 1925 had really expanded the practice of what we call certiorari, of discretionary review, when the Supreme Court was reviewing lower federal courts. In 1988, Congress expanded that to encompass most appeals from state courts as well. And overnight, we saw this sharp drop-off from 150 cases a year to about 90. That was a direct response to what Congress had done. What I think is really interesting, what I think is something Congress has stopped paying attention to, is that since 1988, Congress hasn't lifted a finger to touch the court's docket. And yet, it is this term going to be probably around 60% the size of the court's docket in the first years after the 1988 Act. And so, you know, I think there's a question worth asking about whether it's healthy, not just for the court as an institution, but for the court system, for the Supreme Court to be deciding so few cases. So besides that congressional action or inaction, what else is causing the court to take so many fewer cases? We don't know. I mean, it's part of the problem here is that because this is all discretionary and because, as you know, the court never tells us why it is taking or not taking cases. You know, we're left to speculate. But I do think there are a couple of fairly obvious, at least circumstantial explanations. One is, as we've discussed before, the court is doing more and more stuff through these unsigned, unexplained emergency orders on the shadow docket, that that's taking up more of the court's attention each term. I think also, since it takes four votes to grant certiorari, well, you know, since Justice Kennedy retired in 2018, I think the conservatives now can be more confident about which cases they do and don't want to take. Since Justice Ginsburg died in 2020, the liberals now don't have enough votes to force a grant of certiorari on their own. And, you know, I think what I view as the negative implication of the court hearing fewer cases, that there are fewer cases articulating new legal principles, that there are fewer cases establishing law that can then be used in damages suits or in habeas petitions, frankly, I think the current majority probably isn't much bothered by. So, you know, if you add all these things together, I think just some of the pressures that used to lead the court to take more cases have evaporated at the same time as there are more and more demands on the justice's time from other parts of their caseload. I found it very interesting when you pointed out that when Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, there's no longer a fourth vote for cases that the liberal members might want to hear that might be important to them. Does that mean it's making it easier for the conservative members to push any agenda they might have? Oh, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And and I think that's been true not just since 2020, but since 2018. I mean, I think, you know, when Justice Kennedy was the median vote on the court from 2006 to 2018, there were any number of cases where the conservative justices, or at least some of them, would vote to deny cert, even though they disagreed with the lower courts. A really famous example of this, June, is the marriage cases. Before Obergefell, there were this, this tranche of early marriage cases where federal courts of appeals had struck down state marriage bans, and Chief Justice Roberts refused to provide a fourth vote to grant cert, even though Alito, Thomas, and Scalia wanted to. And, you know, I think the, the widespread assumption is that he didn't want to provide a fourth vote to grant cert because he wasn't confident that Justice Kennedy would join the conservatives. So multiply that by, you know, 100 cases a year, and we see how Justice Kennedy's mere presence on the court led the justices to be much more careful about which cases they wanted to hear, Whereas if Kennedy wanted to hear a case, then all of a sudden it was open season. During that moderating influence is gone. And so if the conservatives want an issue, they now know that they have the vote. And so they can grant the cases they want. They can ignore the cases they don't want. And they don't have to worry about alienating any justice in the middle because there isn't one. You point out that the drop 
into the 60s, 60 cases a term, and now the 50s, is a phenomenon entirely of the last decade. So since Chief Justice Roberts has been Chief Justice for longer than that, can we place the blame in any respect on him? I mean, I think there's a temptation these days to blame Chief Justice Roberts for everything. Um, But I think on this particular one, the answer is no. I mean, I think insofar as anyone agrees with me that it's a problem that the court is hearing so many fewer cases, I think that responsibility lies with all of the justices equally. And I think especially with justices who repeatedly have a majority, i.e. the conservatives. But I think the larger problem here is not one of the court's own making, but rather of Congress's abdication, that what the 1988 statute was an example of was this long-standing, consistent historical pattern where there was this ongoing dialogue between the Supreme Court, lower federal courts, and Congress, where Congress was regularly invested in studying the dockets of the federal courts and figuring out where there was too much, where there was too little, in tweaking things here and there. And since 1988, Congress has basically left all of that alone, so much so that you know there are a lot of folks today who don't think it's appropriate for Congress to be having conversations about regulating the Supreme Court's docket, which would be quite a shock to the 200 years of judges, justices, and Congress members who had exactly that conversation. So the key to me is if folks agree that there's something problematic about not just the drop in the court's caseload, but the control it leaves with the justices. The answer is not for the justices to change their behavior. The answer is for Congress to think about whether there are categories of cases in which the Supreme Court's jurisdiction really should be mandatory, where the court should have to take up appeal. It is hard to see Congress stepping in and telling the Supreme Court what to do these days. It seems just alien to this Congress. Well, and this is the exact mindset that I think I'm, you know, that I'm hoping to push back against, which is it seems that way only because, you know, Congress hasn't done it recently. But, you know, historically from the founding, um, after the Civil War in the 1920s, you know, the, this was a conversation where Congress was not just doing the court's bidding, but was asserting its own authority as an independent institutional actor. I mean, the other piece of this I think folks would find surprising You know, the 1925 Act, which is very quietly the real turning point in the story of the Supreme Court's rise to power, 1925 Act, June, is known informally as the Judges' Bill because it was basically written and lobbied for by the Supreme Court. I mean, by then Chief Justice William Howard Taft. So, you know, I think if we sort of take a slightly longer look at the history here, we shouldn't be nearly as troubled by the specter of Congress having more control over the court's docket. And we shouldn't be alarmed at the notion that this is a conversation that the court and Congress should be having together. I want to divert for a moment. As you know, Justice Clarence Thomas talked about, since the leak, mistrust at the court, having to look over your shoulder. And now you have the arrest of a man for trying to kill Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Has the court changed forever? I mean, I I think there's no question that the events of the last few months um, have been a really significant inflection point in the court's history. I think the tricky part, as with any inflection point, is, you know, an inflection point in which direction. Um, Has the court changed forever? I don't doubt it. Um, Has it changed in ways that are probably not for the better? I suspect the answer is going to be yes, but I also think that it's too early to tell. You know, for now, one of the symptoms of that change is how far behind the justices are and how, frankly, June, unlikely I think it is that by the end of June, they will have wrapped up their business risk. Thanks so much for your insights, as always, Steve. That's Professor Stephen Vladek of the University of Texas Law School. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show.
Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+.